Back in on Canuck Central, we are for Enzyme Pacific, Vancouver's premier Chrysler, Dodge, Ram, and Jeep Superstore on 2nd Avenue between Camby and Main or at EnzymePacificChrysler.ca. We're in the Kintech studio, and we now go to the Dispatch Plumbing Heating and Air Conditioning Hotline. The first call, the only call, it is Kevin Woodley, and he is a presentation of White Rock Hyundai. What's up, Woodley? Not much. Not much. How are you guys? Uh, we're, we're doing pretty well, trying to calm the masses as the Canucks have lost three in a row for the first time this season. I was going to ask you, like, there's stuff falling from the sky right now. Is it? Uh, does, is the sky falling? <laughs> yeah. yeah, pets' heads are falling off. All sort of things are coming off right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a weird one because, I, I don't know, it, it hasn't felt like they've played all that badly at 5-on-5, five five, but uh, the special teams, both the power play and penalty kill, have gone pretty cold here. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much pretty much the story. I mean, a couple of turnovers in that in that Winnipeg game, obviously yeah. in crunch time in the third period, a couple of sort of tough decisions that cost you the other way. But even then, like, you know, in form, they were toe-to-toe with the Winnipeg Jets in terms of what they created, slightly better, about the same in terms of high-danger chances, slightly better in terms of overall expected goals. The Minnesota game is just an anomaly on special teams. I mean, how many – I've talked to a couple of people around the league, like the absurdity of four or five on threes uh, for a goaltender even is, is just tough. And then last night – I mean, how many times have we talked about how fortunate they were and got the bounces and earned them and all that stuff? Last night, they earned some good looks and didn't get any bounces. Mm-hmm. So um, they are pretty much played the Colorado Avalanche dead even by clear-set analytics numbers last night in terms of expected goals, high-danger chances. And, you know, the biggest difference, as you said, reaches the special teams. Uh, oh, for last night, I think more to the point, two low danger chances is all they generated on net in those two power plays. And that's just, you know, Rick talking was talking last week about doesn't matter what the overall numbers are. It's about sort of coming through in crunch time. And, and there was an opportunity to do so. And it, you know, I mean, didn't even get a sniff really, you know, even the Pedersen one where he's kind of walking in low along the goal line. I mean, that's just, there's nothing there. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, that, that is a legitimate cause for concern. But I think when you, know the personnel and the success they've had. I don't think you worry about it not getting fixed. It's just going through one of those ruts right now where they might have to make some changes to get there. Yeah, and, and there are a lot of positives, like you mentioned, in, in, in their game that you feel like are translatable. So it's, it's about getting through it. And the question I had to, uh, to you, I was really thinking about this the last couple of days, and it, we were talking about Casey the Smith after the Minnesota game. He gave up eight goals, and we were kind of walking through the goals and saying, "Well, yeah, he gave up eight goals. Obviously, he didn't have a great night." And he go through all the goals, and you're like, "Well, really, which ones was he really bad on? Is it possible for you to give up eight goals in a game, but also not give up a bad goal?" Yeah, um, honestly, he gave up one mid and seven high dangers. Yeah, there wasn't a low percentage goal in the bunch. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. I mean, because I'm like, yeah, I mean, a post game like, like none, oh, well, he's got to be better. Two low percentage goals, yeah. but yeah, like you're like, so, yeah, he's got to be better. Give up eight goals, but you're like, well, did he actually need to be better? I, I didn't know. I was trying to think about how I was going to answer that. <laughs> yeah, that, right. Like I'm like, not really. Like, and believe me, you're talking to somebody who knows all about giving up eight goals. <laughs> so intimately familiar with this as a problem as a goaltender, but. Um, so I, I, you know, I was like, how do I answer this without seeming like a goalie and ap- apologist? And as you were asking, and I just popped up the, you know, just pulled up that game sheet from ClearSight, and I'm like, literally, if you want the definition of bad goal being low percentage, he did not give up a bad goal 
in that game. Seven of the eight high danger went in, and that's a tough look, even with all the five-on-threes. One-on-five mid-danger, but nothing on, on the low percentage stuff. So, yeah, technically, he did not give up a bad goal despite giving up eight. It's possible because he did it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, is crazy, right? And, you know, uh, Minnesota had, what, four or five on threes. They scored on on three of them. They had another power play goal that they scored on. Um, I think the bigger story is, uh, again, to special teams. And I, I know you've brought it up with us during the course of the year where, you know, maybe the Canucks were, were getting bailed out by their goalies on the PK a little bit uh, through the course of the season. But it's it's really shown some cracks in these last last few games, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, and and if there's been what we've talked a lot about, obviously we talk a lot about underlying numbers and how that profile looks and how much better the profile has been defensively since Rick, Rick Tockett arrived. And the one part of that that sort of hasn't translated is the penalty kill. The underlying on the penalty kill is still bottom half of the league. Um Obviously, the goaltending for, for stretches has has outperformed it. But you know, frankly, when you look at where they rank league wide in terms of penalty kill overall, um, you know, not by much. So, uh, I think the biggest thing to me is when the penalty kill has trended up and looked tighter. Carson Susie's been in the lineup and had a chance to be in the lineup and get some traction. Like I just think, you know there's a guy that they got specifically for that that was doing that like that and rush defense in terms of his ability to sort of play and break up rush chances um i I think they miss him on the penalty kill i do and uh you know listen like five on threes i was gonna say there's gonna be nights like that but i can't remember many where a team even was down five on three as often as that and where things snowballed the way they did um but i think even in the five on four situations like colorado uh, last night had some chances, had some pressure, even if they didn't score uh, on their power play. I, I just think when he hasn't been in the lineup, we've seen you know more of those lateral plays, seam passes, cross ice than you know that they focused on getting rid of. That's that's sort of to me the one area that when he's out, they give up more of those. And it is interesting because Noah Juleson's done really well in his role. And I think what happens sometimes is you give a guy a lot of credit, he comes in, and then expectations get a bit higher. And you get even some people mentioning it. Is he, can he play, up, play higher up your lineup? And it's like, well, it's like it, it's really good that he stepped up and become an everyday player. He can play in your third pair. But it, that doesn't mean you can just assume that he's going to continue progressing and all of a sudden be a top four defenseman. Because the minutes you play when you're a third pair guy are quite different than the minutes you play when you're a top four player. And when those guys get thrust into bigger roles, then that's sometimes where, where the returns start to diminish a little bit. Well, and, you know, I think PK, PK is a tougher one too, mm-hmm. because if you're on that first wave and uh, they're going to miss Dakota Joshua in the short term as well in terms of this. Uh, but when you're out there early, if you don't win that first draw and you, you can spend a good chunk of a PK in your own end, right? Like, Whereas if you win that first draw, get it down, like everything sort of filters off that, especially the way the Canucks play up ice when they're shorthanded, where they get into trouble, and Pockets talked about this a lot, but when they have an opportunity to clear and they're a little soft on the puck and they don't get it out, and now they are extended in their own zone. And if that happens early in a penalty kill shift and you're one of the guys that's first over the board, like I think your numbers get hammered a little bit just because, A, it's the top unit, but, B, those shifts get extended and longer as opposed to if you get it out and start, you know, 
pressuring up ice, pressuring through the neutral zone, not allowing teams to get set up. And that's, you know, again, to me, when the penalty kill started to surge, we were seeing more of that. So you've, you know, you lose Joshua, you're already missing Susie, you've added a new part in Lindholm who, you know, should be a net positive to your PK, but has admitted that there are some things they do differently from what he's used to that will require some time to adjust. And yes, it's already been almost three weeks, but, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things with, with so little practice time, especially of late, that's not that much time, you know, to go from sort of, okay, here's the scheme, here's what we do different to, okay, this is perfectly instinctual for me and I no longer have to think about it. It's automatic. Like that takes a while. So um, I think given some of those personnel things, this was inevitably going to be a bit of a downturn for the PK. And, and again, to me, it starts with Susie. But then, you, you obviously, a night like they had in Minnesota just absolutely nukes your statistics. Kevin Woodley, uh, our guest here on, on Canuck Central. Um, the Elias Patterson conversation, I mean, he's, he's on pace for another 100-plus point season. Uh, I know he hasn't signed a contract yet, and that's maybe uh, a big, well, it is a big part of some of the discourse around him within the fan base, but our text message inbox, uh, I see it on Twitter quite a bit. A lot of negativity around Elias Pettersson and, and his game. I, I, I do think like he can be better than he has been because he's a superstar player, and I expect that of him, but to it just feels like people are... Like the, there's a sense that he's played poorly of late, and I just that that I really can't get behind. Well, I, I I don't know. I mean, I'm shocked, completely shocked to find out that there's negativity on Twitter. First off, yes, um, right. That just <laughs> never happened know, before. Bastion of positivity on there. <laughs> um, listen, I, I, this is a top, like. Don't forget again. Same with the penalty kill. Like, not only have you changed up the personnel in terms of his line mates with Lindholm, but you've moved him off center. Like you, you, you know, you now have him playing the wing there. Um, I just, he it doesn't mean he's above criticism. I just find it a little different. I, the lightning rod he's become to me doesn't match the performance swings that we see. I do see elements in his game that make him a lightning rod. Um, like, I get it, like, in terms of, you know, the contact he, he absorbs. I, like, for the longest time, I'm like, can this guy not get a call? But how often he goes – like, there are things about the way he plays that just make it easy to pick on him, if that makes sense. Yes. And it doesn't mean it's right, and I don't think it's right. Um, but I think when you, you know, honestly take a step back and look at the season he's having overall and look at the changes they've put in around him, like, I don't necessarily think he's the problem on the power play. Like, I think – I, you know, there are a couple of things that I think probably have to change there in terms of how they're utilizing personnel or how they've switched up the personnel, frankly, since Lindholm arrived. Like, I'm not sure they've found a fit there um, for Elias Lindholm, whether it's at five-on-five five in terms of the chemistry that, that's going to require some time with Pedersen or even on the power play, where he's playing on the power play, taking JT out of that spot and, you know, anything that takes Brock away from net front as good as he's been there. Like, there are other elements here um, to sort of always come back to Pedersen as the, the focal point for the blame. Yeah, I, I'm, I guess I'm with you, Reach. Um, it just feels like his, he's an easy target uh, regardless of, of whether he's a problem or not. 
Well, and, and I think there's there always has to be some sort of whipping boy for some reason. I mean, Ilya Mikheyev's been taking it too, and you know yes. his struggles are, are obviously a bit more pronounced than Pedersen's, but I think there is an element of that as well. Now, uh, Kevin, as far as some of the goaltending uh, stuff around the National Hockey League and the opponent the Canucks have coming up tomorrow in Seattle against the Kraken, uh, Joey Decord is putting in quite the season. How good of a year is he having, and is he a guy that could be tough to beat for the Canucks if they face him tomorrow? Uh, I mean, he's he's certainly having a good season. Um, you know, his adjusted numbers on the season from a save percentage standpoint uh, aren't that far behind Thatcher Demko. Um, he's he's played a ton for them. First time he's ever had this opportunity to play this much in the National Hockey League. Like, it's been a really good season for him. And the one caveat I'd throw at you, Satin, this was a caveat you heard me talk a lot about with Casey DeSmith early in the season his expected save percentage is really high. Like it's above 900 and that's pretty rare for it to stay and, and sort of, you know, make that comparison to Smith as that number has come down. So have the raw numbers that had everyone so excited and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, talking so much about him earlier in the season, right? Like, and so some of this is environment. They've been really good defensively for him. Um, They seem to have rediscovered some of that identity that frankly went missing early in the season. And that's going to happen, right? Like, you know, you got you got Beniers as a rookie of the year. McCann scores forty. Like sometimes when you have that type of success, um, especially you know offensively, it's harder to get guys to continue to do things defensively that led to it. And you know, I covered that team in the playoffs last year, and they were so committed. You know, every guy sort of playing the same way and that grinding style, and they would wear you down coming at you in waves, um, and, and everything was tight in their own end. And that disappeared at the start of the season, and the goaltenders' numbers took a hit. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know which one comes first, like chicken and egg. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Decord giving them the confidence to play that way, that they can win playing that way, that they don't have to open it up and try and trade chances, or whether it's him getting the confidence playing behind a team that had rediscovered that. But either way, they're going sort of hand in glove right now. Um, the Kraken are better. He's a big part of that, and they're a big part of the numbers that he's posting right now. You're happy for him uh, because he's a guy that's really hard not to like. Like he's, you know, you have those conversations with goalies around the league. He's truly a student of the game, really passionate about the position. He's kind of one of those no stone unturned guys. Like, and when I say no stone unturned, he literally told me this year he had a game where after the first period he did not feel great about his glove hand. Just wasn't feeling it. Played well. Just wasn't feeling like he was really connected with his glove hand. Went into the locker room in the intermission. Threw on a virtual reality headset that he uses to warm up on game days with a, a program called NHL Sensory. And it's basically virtual reality goaltending. And loaded up a program or a drill we call puck cannon. Programmed it to fire gloves at his glove. Fire shots at his glove hand. And these are like NHL shots. Like, trust me, guys. Like, it looks real went out and played phenomenally the next two periods, was, was feeling great about his glove hand. So, you know, there are some guys that you'll hear me talk about, no stone unturned, they'll do anything to get better. Uh, and when you've got a guy willing to, because he believes in, in, in the product and the program, to actually go into an NHL locker room and throw on a headset, imagine the looks you're getting with that, mm-hmm. um, because he knows it's going to make him better. Like, that is the definition of no stone unturned. A lot of guys wouldn't do it. A lot of guys might not believe in it to the degree he does. Um, but to me, it's just an example of, you know, here's a kid that's willing to do whatever it takes. 
um, even in the middle of a game, just because he doesn't feel 100% to make sure he can get as close to 100% as possible. I, I don't have the uh, the clear sights numbers, but I, I've seen Joey Decord as uh, number two to Connor Hellebuck in goals saved above average over at uh, Natural Statric, which uh, just uses the public data, but um, it, it just kind of highlights just how good of a season he's having for the Seattle Kraken. Uh, that that number. Well, and he's never he, he's never get, got like that's the thing. Eh? Like he's like don't forget he's been around for a while. Got some taste early in Ottawa, had an injury, um, and just really never got the shot. Like, I think a lot of people thought he was going to be their backup last year. He ends up in the American Hockey League, you know, all season going to a Calder Cup final because they signed Martin Jones. Um, so it's just taken him a while to get here. And so that, that experience, I'll tell you, on the numbers, like, he's, he's eighth by clear sight in terms of goals saved above expected. So... You know, Demko's second at 18, Markstrom's first at 25, Hellebuck's third at 18. So he's not quite in that top five, but he's top 10 in the National Hockey League right now, and he's full value for it. Well, I mean, I, I'm going to pass it off to you in a second here, Reach. But the funny thing is, Philip Grubauer might get the start on Thursday because <laughs> he last played on the 13th, and Decord had the last two starts. So maybe for all this talk about, about that, we see Grubauer on Thursday. Uh, possible, because uh, the one thing that, you know, when Grubauer was out, I thought this was interesting because... Um, Chris Dreger actually had one really good start. I think he, he went in, in Calgary in sort of a scheduled loss situation and stopped 37-38 to 38 for the Kraken to get a big win. Um, so I was a little surprised he didn't get more opportunities. I think he only played one more game while Grubauer was down. That's the downside of this for Joey, as much as he's never been here. They're, they're playing, like his, his workload is starting to approach Thatcher Demko territory, and he wasn't the starter for a long time at the beginning of this season, right? He was clearly in that backup role behind Grubauer. So for a stretch here, they played him at a pace that's probably, you know, frankly, unsustainable by today's standards. Um, and so you're right. I don't know what the rotation is. I think they've been off a little bit, so I wouldn't be surprised if it's Joey again, but they do have to watch his workload. So uh, it, it seems as though, just listening to uh, some of the insiders around the league, that the Edmonton Oilers are going to stick with Stuart Skinner as, as their guy. And I know he's turned his season around quite a bit since, since the slow yeah. start, but um, it feels like there's, there's not enough uh, uh, of a cushion there for, for Stuart Skinner, uh, maybe a, a backup or some help, because they've, uh, they've ridden pretty hard, really, since they sent Jack Campbell down. Well, the one thing, and this is sort of the opposite of, I agree with you. I was worried about how much they're playing them. Their schedule has been spaced out, and it's about not to be. But the difference is, I don't think they're, I don't think they'd be, I was going to say stupid enough, but that's probably a strong statement if they actually do it, to play him in their back-to-backs on both ends. And they've got, I think, seven left. So this is sort of the opposite of what we talked about last week with Demko, because the Canucks don't have as many back-to-backs left, you might be tempted to keep playing him because the games are spaced out. In Edmonton, they don't have a choice. Like, seven more games, guaranteed Stuart Skinner is not playing, which sort of forces you to back off that workload a little bit. Um, You know, I I haven't looked in terms of where that puts him pace-wise. Shots-wise, as busy as we think he's been, in terms of shots faced, like, he's still, you know, almost 200 chances fewer than what Thatcher Demko has seen this season. Um, so, you know, there's still a little bit of, to me, the gap I'd be concerned about, and I know he's been, you know, slightly above expected and playing well for them, you know, again, relative to environment. It's been a pretty good, pretty damn good, frankly, and defensive environment in Edmonton for a while. Like, 
I'm a little surprised that they're just going to roll in with, with, with Pickard as the backup. And that seems to be the plan, you know, even to the point where I understand that Campbell's had some success at times in the American Hockey League. There's been other stretches where I've talked to goalie coaches that watch him and aren't sure he's going to be the answer. I'm curious. I'm surprised that they haven't gotten him back up here at any point just because he never got to play behind this team as is. Like he was playing behind them when Skinner's numbers were even worse because they were the worst team in the entire league off the rush. Now they're the best team off the rush. Skinner's clearly benefiting from it both statistically and confidence-wise. And Campbell hasn't even got a chance to play behind that team. So um, my bigger concern with them isn't playing Skinner into the ground because of the schedule. It's more what happens if he does hit a hiccup or what happens if you run into a team in the playoffs that finds something they can expose. Are you that confident in your plan B? And, uh, you know, I love the story of Calvin Picard, but for a team with cup aspirations, um, to go in there with him as your only option or, you know, the only option you've given a chance to sort of get comfortable with your group for the last couple of months, that's, that to me feels like, you know, something worth reconsidering. Woodley, we always appreciate your time. Thanks for this. Thanks, guys. Uh, there is Kevin Woodley. He on Sports at 650 brought to you by White Rock Hyundai. Visit the showroom on King George in White Rock or whiterockhyundai.com. Still to come. Hour number two of the program, we'll uh, touch base with Jeff Baker covering the Seattle Kraken for the Seattle Times as the Canucks get ready for the I-5 already tomorrow and also a little bit of overrated, underrated. That's coming up next on Canucks Central. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People Show with Big Nazar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Final segment, Canuck Central. We are for Enzyme Pacific, Vancouver's premier Chrysler, Dodge, Ram, and Jeep Superstore on 2nd Avenue between Camby and Main or at EnzymePacificChrysler.ca. Welcome in our next guest to the program, Jeff Baker of the Seattle Times covering the Seattle Kraken. And he joins us on the Dispatch Plumbing Heating and Air Conditioning Hotline. The first call, the only call. Thanks for this, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. Just enjoying uh, another day of rain. Uh, it feels like home. <laughs> yeah, n- nothing, nothing like uh, PNW rain uh, for for days and weeks on end. Uh, but uh, winter uh, maybe uh, coming to an end here. We we certainly hope. Um, the Seattle Kraken they've turned around their season quite a bit here. Uh, what's what's been the key factor and why is it Joey Decord? Well, Joey Decord uh, <laughs> usually doesn't allow more than two goals a game, and when yeah. you don't give up more than two goals a game, you're probably going to win most of your games. Uh, the other night he gave up four. Uh, one of them was in overtime, and that, that's pretty much an, anon- an anomaly, easy for me to say. Uh, the last two and a half months or so, I think he's done that maybe three or four times. Uh, but, but I mean, that, that's, that's the bottom line. And they're not, they're not easy games. He's not stopping 20 or 21 shots or something like that. He, he's, he's had to make 35, 37, 38 saves in a bunch of games last week. Um, he's just been focused. He's been uh, well-positioned. And when he doesn't get too adventurous going out of his crease and trying to handle the puck, uh, he usually does all right. So uh, they've, they've been taking advantage of that because they're not a team that's going to score a lot of goals. And so when I said that, usually you're going to win um, when you give up two or fewer. Uh, 
Sometimes the Kraken don't, you know. Uh, well, they, they usually do, but they, they have trouble scoring three goals a game some nights. So, uh, you know, you got to watch that. Uh, it's been it's been mostly goaltending up till now. Has maybe, uh, you know, goaltending aside, has their defensive play been the most consistent uh, quality that they've had so far this season as a team? Yeah, it's tightened up a bit. I think uh, Brian Dumoulin, who, who's playing his 500th game tomorrow if he dresses, uh, and he should. Uh, he'll be in his 500th game. I mean, I think it's taken him a while to acclimate to to his new team, uh, even though he's a veteran. And uh, I think you see him playing with a higher degree of comfort uh, back there. Uh, he's moved the puck well. That That's helped stabilize his defensive core a bit. Uh, they've tightened up. But, and, and, you know, they're allowing a lot of shots, but they don't allow too many high-danger shots uh, from in close, which, which which has been a key. They, they've tightened up on that. They still allow a few too many shots for, for anybody's liking, but... Uh, you know, it's definitely not the worst part of the team. They, they, they've tightened up quite a bit. Uh, Riker Evans is, is being melded into that uh, that that trio. Um, sorry, that that uh, defensive pairing set. And uh, you know, he's a rookie, but he's looked okay. He's looked solid. Uh, they got one too many defensemen. They're gonna have to figure out what they're gonna do going forward. If they're gonna keep Justin Schultz at the trade deadline, or if they're gonna try to deal him for a draft pick, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens from here. But but it's definitely not the worst part of their team. Do you see them being a, a selling at the deadline here because they are right on that playoff bubble? I don't. If they're close, you know, if they stay as close as they are right now, which is within you know three four points, I don't see them selling. Um, they, they've they've got to they, they've still got to sell themselves in this market. There's still there's a lot of sports competition here. Um, they they have not maxed out on the fan base as much as they could have since they got here two and a half years ago and or since they started playing two and a half years ago. And, uh, you know, I think they really want to continue that push. They want to try to, you know, get people interested in a playoff run down the stretch. And hopefully, you know, they, they think it into the playoffs. Uh, and that, that really worked out well for them a year ago. It really uh, motivated people to come out and see their games. It really generated a lot of interest locally. That, that momentum, that interest has really died off this season. Uh, you don't see it as much. A lot of it has to do with their on-ice play for the first half of the year. And, and so I, I, I really don't. Unless they fall something like seven, eight points back, uh, I really don't see them doing a big sell-off. I could see them maybe moving a piece or two. Um, but, uh, you know, especially in, in the surplus areas, you've got some extra forwards that are lying around there. Uh, but I don't see them moving anybody integral to the team if they're still in it. I mean, personally, I'm hoping that they continue going and make the postseason and the Canucks hold their position because a first-round matchup of the Canucks versus the Seattle Kraken, I think, would be fantastic to kickstart the rivalry. And as far as attention would go, I mean, you know, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. There's still like 20-odd-some games remaining in the season. But I think the best-case scenario would be both these teams being in and facing each other in the first round. I agree with you. I wrote a column about that in today's uh, Seattle Times. Basically, I, I, you know, I'm probably a lot older than you, but I, I grew up in Montreal, and I remember the Canadians, mm-hmm. uh, when the Quebec Nordiques first showed up on the scene in 1979, you know, there was a bit of a rivalry for the first few years, but it really took off in 1982 when, when Dale Hunter scored an overtime goal to upset the Canadians. Canadians were like 25, 30 points ahead of them in the standings, but the Nordiques beat them, and in, in, it was best of five in those days. In the fifth game, Dale Hunter scored in overtime, and that's what jump-started the rivalry. From then on, we're talking blood sport. It was one of the, the most fierce rivalries the NHL has ever seen. And, and it all started with that playoff series. And, I, you know, the game's changed. We're not going to see that kind of violence on the ice nowadays with, with these teams. You hope, you hope not, anyway. And, uh, but, but the rivalry itself, really, you, you need a spark plug. You need, a, you need something at stake. 
between these teams for the rivalry to really get started. And, you know, what, a, what better stake would there be than, you know, the number one overall team in, in the conference, maybe in the entire NHL, taking on a, a neighbor a few hours down the highway south? I mean, that, that's, that's where rivalries are born. And I'll tell you what, the Kraken could really use it right now, and, and the Canucks could use it as well. Uh, the rivalries help everybody out. They, they, they generate interest, they sell tickets, and then, uh, you know, you know and, and it, it just gives fans a, a date to mark on the calendar. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, for for Canucks fans, having a, a geographical rival was one of the uh, the favorite things about Seattle coming into the league. But yeah, I, I don't know if we'll ever get a game quite like the Good Friday Massacre from uh, from uh, the, those Nordiques <laughs> and and uh, Habs games uh, from back in the eighties. It was. Uh, Are you even allowed to say that on the air these days? Uh, I don't know. The times have changed, but uh, no, that was the nickname. Obviously, it's funny. Ryan Walter, who lives up in your area. Um, I, I was talking to him a few years ago about it. He, he actually he was on the ice for that. And, uh, yeah, I did a whole column on, the, on that game. Uh, you know, people who think that we have line brawls in hockey nowadays <laughs> should go back and rewind the YouTube <laughs> on that one. And, uh, I remember watching it live, and my parents were trying to turn off the television set. And, uh, yeah, good times, lots of fun. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a different time in the National Hockey League then, for sure. Uh, joining us, Jeff Baker of uh, the Seattle Times here on, uh, on Canucks Central. Canucks and Seattle cracking going uh, tomorrow night. You know, you mentioned that uh, this is not a team that scores very much. Uh, Jared McCann, the leading goal scorer with 24 on the season. But beyond that, it's, uh, it's, it's, it can be a little bit dry. It's, you, know, you mentioned how um, it, it's been hard to sell the Kraken at times. The, the superstar player hasn't yet emerged for this Kraken team, has it? No, they really have. It's funny, you know. In, in some respects, you could consider Jared McCann a star. I mean, pretty goals. He's on pace yeah. to score another thirty-five. He had twenty-eight the year. I mean, this guy's blossoming into an elite player. But no, you don't have the, the superstar. You know, uh, Connor McDavid, Leon Draisaitl, or or somebody under that. You, you really don't have that here. They were hoping it could be Matty Beniers. Right now, Beniers is looking more like. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't want to say a Ron Francis type because Ron Francis is a Hall of Famer. Right. Um, but, but, you know, a solid two-way guy who's maybe not the best guy on a team of superstars, but is the next one down, and that was Ron Francis. He's, you know, this, the second center who could step up when, when, when uh, Lemieux, one of the big guys, went down on that Pittsburgh Penguins team, you know, and, and Hartford before that. He was the guy. But, you know, on a really elite team, you know, Matty Beniers is probably that next echelon of players. So no, they don't have that. They were hoping, you know, maybe Shane Wright could be something like that. I, I don't know. Based on the early returns, it's tough to tell. He's 20 years old. So, um, you know, we'll have to see uh, how he does when he gets called back up from Coachella Valley. But they really, they don't have that guy. I don't know that they have him in the system as of yet. And uh, so, so we're going to, uh, we're, we're going to have to see what they do in this off season. You know, there are a lot of people that are thinking uh, Elias Lindholm would, would be a really good fit at center here here with the Kraken. You know, we'll, we'll see. Right now he's playing in, a, in another uniform and he'll be playing a climate pledge, but, uh, you know, not in a Kraken uniform. So, um, and I don't know that he's necessarily the guy that's going to bring, bring people rushing to the stands either on this team, but they, they don't have it. You're right. They're a team built on depth, a team built on solid guys who would make a good 
number two, number three line, uh, you know, for a championship team. That That's what they've got here. I'm really fascinated to see what Francis and that front office will do because we know his MO in Carolina was to be very conservative. He's very patient with his pieces and the guys he believes in gives them ample time to figure it out. But as you mentioned, if you're trying to find a higher end, there's only two ways of doing so. One, it's either drafting very high to get those players, uh, unless you get really lucky somehow in the draft, or you go out and acquire them. And we have heard, you, you know, the, the crack in and around some star players the past couple of years that they've been rumored, even Eric Carlson, apparently they were somewhat interested in acquiring the defenseman. Do you think this is something that they're, they're going to be aggressive to do, to go out and try to find a star level player? That's a very good question. I, it depends on the pressure, I think, that the front office feels from ownership mm-hmm. after this season. I mean, it's going to be very interesting this summer. That their season tickets uh, were sold in packages of three-year minimums, and those are coming due this spring. So they're going to be going out to all their season ticket holders asking for renewals. Now, obviously, if they won't make the playoffs, it's going to be a much tougher sell. Um, it's already a tough sell because the market, you know, when you go on StubHub, you could buy seats cheaper than, than the season ticket holders paid for their tickets here in Seattle. So, uh, you know, they've already got a tough road ahead there. So it depends on how much pressure they feel to win right away and how much longer they'll get to build through the draft. Um, you know, Francis's MO, as you mentioned, in Carolina was that. But as you know, he also got fired four years into a five-year plan in, in Carolina. And so, um, you know, next year will be year four for him here in Seattle. Uh, I, I don't think his job's in any danger. I'm not suggesting that. In fact, he just got extended this summer. But, you know, they, they, there, is, there is a little more pressure on this team to win than there would be in some other markets, uh, you know, even in the tougher Canadian markets where, you know, I've lived and worked in two of them in Montreal and Toronto, so I know what that's like. Uh, but, but it's different here because they are, they are literally in a battle for their survival here. Um, and, and I don't mean they're going to pack up and move next week. That's not happening. But, I mean, in just trying to establish a toehold here, trying to become relevant in a sports market where you're surrounded by, by multiple teams every single day doing stuff um you know they, they they don't have seven years to put this thing together they, they got to try to find uh some answers so uh, you know all that uh blah 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 i do think they're going to try to go out and get somebody that's another another level for next year i mean alex Weinberg's contract's expiring they, they need another center they need they need some centermen they're kind of kind of weak up the middle uh, and i can see them trying to make a big splash on a free agent uh, up the middle somewhere th- this summer yeah, it feels like uh, Ron Francis's mo for a long time has been uh, he's too patient, and and I wonder if uh, that continues with Seattle, if that uh, might spur some some change in in the front office, not so far down the line, because as you mentioned, already a, a busy sport market, and who knows when when the NBA might be coming back to town in Seattle, which I know has been long rumored as well, Jeff. Yeah, it's not just a rumor; it's going to be here. I would say within two years, we're, we're going to hear something. Uh, the, the NBA has to get its TV deal done first. Uh, and then they have to finish the, the they're building an arena right now in, in Vegas, uh, Tim Wiki's group, the OT group, same ones that built the arena here at climate pledge They're they're building the arena there. So it's all, it's all interconnected. They're going to announce, uh, you'd probably Seattle and Vegas at the same time. Um, and so, you know, that, that's going to happen. And yeah, there, there's going to be, you're going to have five, you know, six major pro teams here that they're going to be competing with. Never mind the minor pro stuff that they've got going on. Um, you know, they've also got women's uh, soccer, uh, you know, you've got MLS, which I don't necessarily consider major professional, but it's it's right up there in the next level. And then you got, you know, uh, you've you got a football school here and you, you, Big Ten right now, and so uh, you know, as well as well as baseball and football and hockey, it's really getting crowded for, for such a small city, and it's. Uh, 
yeah, it, there's not going to be room for five-year rebuilding plans here where you make people lose, you know, you, you make people wait and lose for three, four years. That, I think, is going to go over. I, I think a lot of sports are changing. You're not going to see that as often, them making fan bases wait. There's just too much money at stake now. And uh, I think you're going to see that shift in sports away from those, those kind of plans where fan bases are asked to do what the Houston Astros fans had to do in order to bear success. But remember, not every team – not every team feels that success. Then you got the Buffalo Sabres, whose fans have been waiting for 20 years for, for a rebuild to take shape, and uh, they're still waiting. So I, I don't think you're going to see that very often. It, it's ironic. You mentioned Francis being patient here. It's funny because the biggest the biggest hindrance, I would say, on the, on this roster right now from a contract perspective is Philip Grubauer, and that was one of Francis's first free agent signings. You know, right now you're paying a $5.9 million a year to a backup goaltender, mm-hmm. and, and he's got three-plus years to go. So that's uh, – uh, you know, I can understand him being a little shy when it comes to necessarily, you know, pulling the switch on a big move at this stage because, you know, he made that move and it was very out of character for him. And it was in a goalie, which he doesn't specialize in historically, as far as the GM goes. Uh, and and it, it's kind of backfired a little bit on him. And so, uh, you know, that you got that dynamic floating around in the background as well. He is uh, Jeff Baker of the Seattle Times. Follow him on Twitter, at Jeff Baker Times. And uh, there you can find a link to his latest about uh, a potential heated regional rivalry with the Canucks and Seattle Kraken, a game tomorrow night, and potentially, we hope, a first-round playoff series coming this year. Thanks for this, Jeff. Thank you. I hope I didn't jinx it when I wrote that. <laughs> so, uh, well, you're right. Watch. They'll, they'll, they'll follow number three or four, and the Kraken will finish eighth. And so... <laughs> Yeah, well, anyway. if that were to happen, uh, Canucks fans would not be be too happy if they fall that far down the standings. We'll see what happens. It should be a good yeah, one. Yeah, probably tomorrow. not. I, I wouldn't think. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Thanks, Jeff. There is uh, Jeff Baker of the uh, Seattle Times joining us here on uh, on Canuck Central. He's uh, he's ahead of the game as we mentioned it uh, last week. Uh, Sat Seattle and. Vancouver potentially lining up for a first-round playoff series. Uh, you might want Seattle to, to win tomorrow night's game in order for that to, to stay on track. But it's, I mean, it's the first thing we thought about when Seattle was announced as an expansion team, right? Uh, potential rivalry with the Seattle Kraken and the Vancouver Canucks. And, you know, the regular season games have... Uh, not always been all that heated because there hasn't been really enough at stake. And well, except for last year, uh, Kraken fans were very upset about Tyler Myers hitting Matty Beniers yes. and they wanted blood. And we we're like, "What? What's going on? Why? Why does everybody hate Myers in Seattle?" <laughs> and it was because he hit uh, Matty Beniers and put him out with a concussion for a little while. But Canucks fans didn't even realize it. Seattle's just. They're kind of whatever, you know, and we talked about this when they went through their expansion draft, like what exactly was the plan for Ron Francis? And here they are uh, three years in. They they made a little bit of a playoff run last year, which was surprising. Um, But, you know, you look at their roster and you're just like, yeah, this team is kind of exactly where I expect them to be on the bubble. They're not super good and they're not really bad enough to be at the bottom of the league well and that's why i'm very interested to see what they do this offseason and maddie Beniers, like it's it's interesting because it reminds me of when the canucks got bow mm-hmm. and it was like he's good but he's not like a frontline superstar player and it's a nice piece but he's the first piece but he's maybe maybe more of a secondary piece in yep. your core and then like the one you throw on in front and then you know the canucks took some time and eventually drafted higher and, and got some players but how is Seattle going to get players that are better? Yeah. He mentioned Elias Lindholm. I'm sure they're interested in him. Yeah. But is he, like, 
like Benier is is kind of Lindholm light right now. Yes. You know what I mean? Like so it's Lindholm isn't a number one center in in the true sense of the word. So if that's the guy they were bringing in, for instance, right? Yeah. And you have Beniers, and, and these are the upgrades. Like I think their ceiling is pretty limited as a team. Like they're 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 going to have to go and find real needle moving stars. Yeah. And perhaps they have somebody in Vince Dunn on the back end that can give them something close to that with how he's played and the way he's developed. Um, He's still playing really well this year, but not at the same level he was at last year, perhaps quite with his two-way game. Yep. But and Adam Larson is closer to free agency expiry as well. So it, they're in a they're in a tough spot, and it always felt like they were going to be in that tough spot with the way they went about their expansion process. Beniers, you know, he's still just twenty-one. Glass half full. If you're uh, if you're looking at it, Kraken are probably going to get him at a good price on his second contract. So, you know that's going to be helpful. Shane Wright's been really good in the AHL for Coachella this year. He was drafted fourth overall. That gives you, assuming they both hit at a reasonable level, you know that gives you two good centers. Do you have a number one center, a true difference making center? That might be the thing that they continue to look for. And you know they. Haven't had a ton of extra draft picks. They did a couple of years ago, but after they went to the playoffs last year, that's uh, that story's kind of changed. Yeah, they don't quite have as, as much coming in. Shane Wright, uh, somebody texts in and says they're taking their time with him, and for sure. But is Shane Wright projecting to be a superstar or another nice piece, right? Maybe a second line type of guy? Like, who are their front line star players? And that's something they, they're still looking to add. Now, there was one uh, overrated, underrated overflow mention that I wanted to get to. Mm-hmm. And it came on Twitter and it was essentially, I can't find the person who sent it in. I deeply apologize, but overrated or underrated, taking a slap shot into an empty net. Uh, <laughs> underrated. It's great. It's fantastic. Well, I mean, it's underrated. Slap shots when you have a wide open net from JT. It's underrated if it's Ridley Gray, because I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> it's overrated if you if you have an open if net. If it's in-game. In-game, you have defenders charging at you. you're trailing by a goal, and like, it's hey, you have an open the net. nine seconds. Yeah, well, if you have an open net, just like... Shoot it into the open net. Yeah. Don't wind up with the slap shot. Give t- give people time to get into the shooting lane. All this stuff that Philip Ronick did. Yesterday. I studied that play so closely to see, like, you know, am I out to lunch on this? I was still watching it this morning, and it it's like he so and I don't understand why. And 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 when as soon as he loaded up and he sees two guys charging at him, and they're a wall. <laughs> they're like side to side, the two abs players. It's a literal wall. Just, if I wind up, they're just gonna move out of the way. Yeah, and I was I like, got a hundred mile an hour clapper. Yeah. You like, see them closing. You see them closing on you like at least now fake it right and just nope just head down I, just, I, I feel like he didn't even aim either he's like I'm shooting middle of the net it goes in hard. it goes in man if the net is as open as it is like just take the shot as quickly as you possibly can yeah, just get it off it doesn't matter how hard it goes into the net you know? it loads up the slap shot you don't get extra points that better knock his AV down like two <laughs> I think all of us are like what, what are you doing just shoot it uh, Oh, just uh, absolutely hilarious. Uh, Basketball Phil, really liking uh, Jeff Baker's inclusion on today's program. We enjoyed it, too. A little throwback to the the Good Friday massacre between the Montreal Canadiens and and Quebec Nordique. To think about how much consternation there was about Morgan Riley and Ridley Gregg. Imagine if there was another absolute brawl like that one from uh, from 1984. Uh, All right. That's going to do it for us. Tomorrow. 
on 4 to 6, pregame at 6 on Sportsnet Pacific as well for the pregame at 6.30, Canucks and Seattle Kraken. For producers Elon and Josh, my co-host Sat, I'm Dan. You've been listening to Canucks Central.